welcome to Zoned Out, a podcast where we examine the capitalist city and imagine how a socialist city could replace it. My name is Rin, and to be honest, this episode is going to be kind of a mess. My original plan for the month fell through, for good reason, don't get me wrong, but I usually give myself at least a couple weeks to do research and script writing before recording. However, I work full-time, so I've had to scramble a little bit to get something else together in shorter order. For subscribers to the show, I know you're not subscribed for messiness, so I'm going to do a bonus episode uh, as appreciation for your patience this month, next month in November, on Fordlandia for Patreon subscribers only. Fordlandia was the strange rubber plantation town Henry Ford tried to build in the Brazilian Amazon. Speaking of patron perks, we also have a Discord server now. So if that interests you, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash zonedoutpodcast. In this episode, I wanted to round out our conversation about the financialization of cities in the United States and elaborate a little further on things I didn't get the chance to talk about in previous episodes. Last episode, I spent a lot of time talking big picture about how real estate investment has become a short-term investment vehicle for excess capital coming from other sectors of the economy. Two episodes ago, we read an article about how Miami has been seeing massive amounts of investment in the quote-unquote tech sector. $1.9 billion in 2020 was the number given in the article. Let's start with this quick analysis of that number because it's interesting to see the specifics of where all that venture capital actually went. $700 million of that $1.9 billion, about 37% of it, was invested in one deal between SoftBank and Reef Technologies. SoftBank is an investment bank owned by the wealthiest person in Japan, and it operates what has been referred to as the largest technology-oriented investment fund in the world, called the Vision Fund. The fund was started in 2017 with over half of its initial $100 billion in funding coming from the sovereign wealth funds of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Saudi Arabia provided $45 billion, and the UAE provided $15 billion, with their sovereign wealth funds being almost entirely funded by the profits from petroleum exports. So we need to understand the Vision Fund not just as some random big sum of money that was just lying around in a bank, but as massive amounts of excess capital generated from oil extraction trying to seek out profit in other sectors of the economy. Reef is a quote-unquote tech company whose mission is, quote, reimagining the common parking lot as a neighborhood hub for sustainable urban living in cities. Reef owns a network of thousands of lots and garages and has already begun turning some of them into ghost kitchens, COVID-19 testing sites, electric vehicle charging stations, and last-mile delivery hubs. In other words, Reef is a commercial real estate development company with a focus on on-demand logistics. If you're not familiar with ghost kitchens, they're just a commercial kitchen without the dining space. They are used solely for the purpose of fulfilling delivery orders. This investment in Reef actually works really well with other more well-known investments in the Vision Fund, like DoorDash and Uber, which of course has Uber Eats. There's a restaurant called BurgerFi that signed a deal with Reef to operate out of a bunch of their kitchens. BurgerFi asks the big questions, like, what if your burger was also Wi-Fi? I'm bringing this all up for a couple reasons. First, don't ever accept the term tech company at face value. Reef is a real estate development company first and foremost. They build kitchens to rent them out to delivery restaurants, among other activities. 
Their last mile delivery hubs are the result of a partnership with logistics company DHL Express to build logistics facilities where the goods will be delivered by bike rather than delivery van. Reef acquires the land and then they partner with a business that will operate out of the facility Reef builds. Commercial landlording is not a revolutionary technology. Moreover, I was right to question that $1.9 billion tech investment number in the August episode. I wondered how much of it was actually just real estate investment, and at least 37% of it is. So this is my victory lap. Second, I bring this all up because it is another great example of how capital moves across sectors of the economy and transforms the urban landscape. This is basically the story of how the Saudi royal family is making it so the swag burger is available in all 50 states. In all seriousness, though, the reason I have such an issue with the tech bro culture and the Silicon Valley mindset and all of that is that none of these companies would actually mean anything or be as big as they are without old money deciding to throw them a bone. A lot of SoftBank's big investments are in cryptocurrency, and they're not the only massive financial institution in this arena either. So the next time somebody tries to tell you that crypto and NFTs are creating revolutionary alternatives to traditional government currency, just tell them that the chances are poop coin or whatever they're excited about is being underwritten by the same old money financial institutions that are invested in maintaining the status quo and are just trying to make a quick buck off the hype. It's not disruptive. It's just how capitalism works. Also, as a reminder in all of this, American investment firms and venture capitalists are doing the exact same things as SoftBank in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. It just happens that the largest investment made in Miami startups in 2019 was from SoftBank and that the article we read in August was about Miami, but JP Morgan and BlackRock do all the same things and illustrate the same point. I think that article actually mentioned JP Morgan building an office or something in Miami, so yeah. Moving on, I wanted to talk about the other side of urban financialization and talk about the sexy world of mortgage-backed securities, or MBS. Not to be confused with Mohammed bin Salman, who you may know as the guy trying to bring burger Wi-Fi to the residents of Fargo, North Dakota. As well as the crown prince of the Saudi royal family and prime minister of Saudi Arabia. We've been talking about how there is often massive investment by major financial institutions into spurring real estate activity, allowing these firms to directly or indirectly acquire new real estate holdings in metropolitan areas. However, the other way this happens is through investment bundles of mortgages that thousands of individual people have taken out to buy homes for one reason or another. Reef is buying parking lots to make ghost kitchens because they got the investment money from SoftBank to do that. I want to buy a house because I want to get a drum set and play it without annoying my neighbors. Well, actually, I want housing and land to be decommodified so housing becomes a public good and collective right, but... For now, I'll settle on buying a house and then being the only homeowner in my neighborhood excited for the government to repossess my house. People put down a down payment on the home they want and then go to their bank to get a mortgage for the rest. A mortgage is a loan you get from a bank to buy a house if you're not familiar with the term. They then spend the next 30 years paying off the value of the mortgage while also paying interest on it. And interest is where the big money gets made. Let's walk through the process of how mortgage-backed securities are created so that you get a better sense of how they work. So let's say I go to my bank and take out a $200,000 mortgage to buy my new home that's really just a drumming studio. While I'm finalizing the mortgage deal, they charge me a bunch of fees because what am I going to do? My bank owns the mortgage and they can do whatever they want with it. 
They decide to sell my mortgage to a larger investment bank for the value of the mortgage, $200,000 in this case. The investment bank has been buying hundreds and hundreds of mortgages from various smaller banks and takes about a thousand of them and groups them into a nice little mortgage bundle. Then the bank creates a shell corporation out of the mortgage bundle so investors can now purchase shares in the shell corporation and earn returns off the interest payments all the new homeowners are making on their mortgages. The shares investors buy in the mortgage shell company are the mortgage-backed securities. So my small bank where I get my loan makes money from the fees they charge me. The big investment bank makes its money by selling shares of the mortgage shell company to investors. The investors make money as the homeowners pay interest on their mortgages, which the investors receive a portion of as dividends. I think this is also pointless and I hate it. <laughs> Mortgage-backed securities are just a way to skim money off the top of people trying their best to acquire a basic need. Maybe you'll hear people say that actually investors are providing banks with more capital to be able to lend out for mortgages, allowing more people to get mortgages. But this is ridiculous. First off, this only became a thing in 1981. So lots of people were buying homes and banks were lending plenty of money well before that. But beyond that, I haven't looked in detail into whether the mortgage-backed security market affects actual home list prices. But the MBS market is a major driver of mortgage interest rates, which play a huge role in whether homeownership is affordable to people. When the MBS market is weak, lenders can increase interest rates to make mortgage-backed securities more attractive investments because higher interest rates mean higher returns. The idea that mortgage-backed securities somehow redound to the benefit of home buyers is ludicrous. The rapper Ludicrous is older than mortgage-backed securities. The 2008 financial crisis was essentially the results of investors seeking out riskier and riskier investments, i.e. banks lending out mortgages to home buyers at larger values and higher interest rates than the home buyer could reasonably be expected to pay back. And then too many people defaulting on those mortgages at the same time. All these investors and financial institutions had tons of money wrapped up in these risky investments, called subprime mortgage bundles, and they lost enough money for many to fall into bankruptcy and need saving by the federal government. Meanwhile, the people who defaulted on their mortgages lost their homes. The system is designed for investors, not home buyers. From what I've read lately, it doesn't seem like we really learned anything from the 2008 financial crisis. Capitalism naturally creates crises in itself, and it feels like the real estate sector is lurching toward another. The recent interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve are an attempt to remedy this, but ultimately it just feels like tinkering on the margins of a system that has only guaranteed precarity for the majority of people participating in it. That's it for Ren's feelings section of the podcast. For the rest of the show, I just want to do a reading series and goof off a little. It's kind of a hodgepodge episode today. The opinion piece I'm reading once again comes from City Journal, the conservative Manhattan Institute's publication about cities and urban thought. The most recent 2022 edition is full of what you might expect. Wokeness runs amok in society, school choice is good, and affirmative action is degrading the medical field. Standard reactionary talking points that bad writers get paid thousands of dollars to piss out. However, one article caught my eye, a short one titled In Defense of Slippery Slope Arguments by Benedict Beckeld, a New York-based philosopher originally from Sweden. One nice thing I'll say about the author is that I think he has a cool name. Very cartoon villain, very bowler cap and trench coat, very curly Q mustache. This character would be one of my blorbos. 
If you're a Tumblr user, then you know what a Blorbo is, and this guy would be one of them. Anyway, I must admit something that I don't think I have shared yet on this podcast. It may come as a shock, but I did debate in high school. Surprising, I know, given that now I do a politics podcast in my free time. A huge departure from the arguing with teenagers I did on my weekends 10 years ago, where we clashed over topics like, should we nuke Iran, or will raising the capital gains tax by 0.1% destroy America? Important questions. In all seriousness, some of the best people I've ever met were in the debate circuit. I learned a lot, actually, about empathy and seeing issues from different perspectives. While I don't like debate much as a format today among adults, at least as I've seen it manifest because I think so much political content today is more about dunking on your opponents than actually learning, nevertheless it was definitely a positive experience for me as a teenager. I have my feelings about the direction debate has headed since I graduated high school and honestly was already heading while I was in it, but that's not relevant here. In high school debate, you often start off learning the major logical fallacies like ad hominems, appeal to nature, and of course, the slippery slope. So when I saw this article, I was genuinely curious why somebody would take the time to defend the honor of slippery slopes as if these slopes are just really sad about how mean everyone is to them. I also thought it was strange this was in City Journal, but the conservative media sphere has so many random publications that if you cobble together some basic drivel about how the left is going too far in ruining society, then your writing can always find a home somewhere. Anyway, let's get into the article. Beckel begins, Every now and then, a piece of philosophical theory breaks into the popular consciousness, such that people without any philosophical education regularly refer to it. One such theory is the rejection of the slippery slope argument, which holds that an event, A, will set off a series of events culminating in some dreadful consequence, B, and therefore A should not occur. So let's stop here. I don't have any major issues with this description of slippery slope arguments, except I think it would be better to say A will result in Z, rather than A will result in B. That's the kind of leap we're talking about here. When we catastrophize in our minds about some minor mistake we made, like saying bye to a friend in a slightly different tone from how we usually say it, and then that causes distance between you two, and then they start to hate you because they think you abandoned them when really you're just an anxious person, and then they start getting your other friends to hate you, and then you die sad and lonely. We're talking about dozens and dozens of links in a chain that have to come together over time with more and more variables being able to intervene and change the course of events at each link in the chain. Jumping from A to B is generally reasonable. Maybe your friend will ask you about your tone the next time you hang out and you get things sorted out in that conversation. Maybe your friend doesn't fixate on minor tonal differences in your speech and they won't notice at all. So A never actually leads to a B in the first place. This may seem pedantic at this point, but I think it's important to emphasize how drastic the jump from beginning to end is in slippery slope arguments because the author seems to be comfortable taking some massive leaps. He continues, True, such arguments can sometimes ignore a potential middle ground and overlook the fact that dreaded consequences will not necessarily follow. But slippery slope arguments are not always incorrect, and they offer insight about the nature of modern progressivism. This type of writing really bugs me because you see it in so many conservative think pieces and honestly just a lot of like think pieces in general. The idea is you had your bets immediately by equivocating on the extent to which you have a problem with something. So you can construct an imaginary scenario to attack rather than contending with the real world. 
He goes on, Societies slide down such slopes all the time. History is full of examples of nations that moved in a progressive direction over time, tended toward decadence or exhaustion after altering rules for elites, and then relaxed moral standards. Indeed, the slippery slope argument, especially in the context of social decay, has a noble pedigree. Plato observes in The Republic that democracy leads to authoritarianism. As freedom and equality expand beyond orderly limits, only hard-headed authority can rein them in. The fall of the Roman Republic to authoritarian empire and the rapid collapse of French republicanism before the rise of Napoleon stand as examples. So here's the thing about analyzing history. You can't read destiny into the series of events that occurred because to do so is to ignore the multiple potentialities that exist at any moment in time. While we can imagine certain outcomes to be more likely than others, nothing about history is predetermined. Moreover, all he is doing here is reading his own modern moral anxieties into events of the past and using them as definitive explanations for why things turned out the way they did. When it comes to Republican Rome, can you look at nearly 500 years of Republican rule and then when it crumbles, say triumphantly, I told you the social decay created by democracy would bring about the end of our society. If you are living in Rome in 300 BCE and saying this, it would take 250 years for your argument to even have a chance at making sense. As far as Republican France goes, what is the argument here? That it would have been better for the French Revolution not to occur and a parasitic monarchy to persist? Perhaps Napoleon was able to take advantage of a fledgling government that had not even had a decade to solidify its control. So it didn't matter that it was democratic or aspirationally democratic. It was just a new government. How many dictators have we seen toppled in short succession of each other as they fail to establish control over their own government? Could we not draw the same conclusion that authoritarianism leads to collapse and turmoil? The passage from Plato's Republic he is referencing argues that the way out of this supposed democracy to tyranny pipeline is to have a government managed by the most capable administrators at the top, and then a mix of military, oligarchical, and democratic systems as you near the bottom. The one thing about this argument is that if a democratic regime collapses, as so many have done over the millennia, you can take the easy way out and say democracy gave people too much leeway rather than take time to understand the unique conditions present in each circumstance. Of course, the question that has been asked to Plato, and everyone else who espouses this idea, is how the capable administrators are chosen. Perhaps the selection is religious or based on familial bloodline. But I think that this argument really just boils down to, just don't rock the boat. If somebody has power, that probably means they've earned it, and we should just go along with it for the sake of stability. The emphasis on stability over all other considerations is key to understanding his argument here, as we will see in a moment. He goes on, Contemporary progressives tend not to be satisfied with certain political victories, which, once achieved, give way to new demands. For example, activists hoping to secure rights for sexual minorities initially made assurances that those who disagreed would be left alone. Now they intend to stamp out dissent and expand the universe of rights beyond gay marriage. Given this history, one may be forgiven for suspicion of progressive intentions or for concluding that the slippery slope is itself embedded in the progressive posture. It is also a definitional question. Whereas conservatism wishes to remain in one place or, at most, to move only in certain limited respects, the very definition of progressivism is to progress, that is, to keep moving. 
Let's start with the last sentence there with how he understands conservatism as remaining in one place or maybe limited movement because he needs to concede that conservatism often does in fact move society in a direction even if that direction is backwards. Virtue is derived from maintaining stability. But of course, a situation that looks stable to one person may be understood as complete turmoil for another. When it comes to the advancement of LGBTQ plus rights, Achievements like marriage equality and protection from discrimination are actually steps towards social stability for queer people. Queer people today are still fired from jobs, denied housing, barred from public spaces, and refused medical care because of who we are. These are destabilizing things. If you're a Christian conservative like Beckeld is, then advancements in queer rights seem destabilizing to you despite the fact that your life hasn't changed in a material sense. It's a sort of metaphysical destabilization where your understanding of how the world is turns out to be incorrect. Oh, that must be so hard for you. To move on from stability to get back to slippery slopes, this argument he's making about how the progressives lied about going quote-unquote beyond marriage equality is ridiculous for a few reasons. First, the queer political movement has never been solely focused on marriage equality. Protection from discrimination has always been a foundational demand. Second, he's being disingenuous, implying that if progressives had just stopped at marriage equality, then he'd be fine with it. With the persecution of trans people happening right now, this has become a more common conservative line. We were fine with marriage equality, but you guys kept pushing, and that's why there's a backlash against you now. These same people were fighting viciously against marriage equality at the time. So to pretend that your issue is that the queer rights movement didn't just stop there is ridiculous. Finally, let's get to the meat of the reason he's bringing marriage equality up. He continues, But the slippery slope argument often resonates as a criticism of modern progressivism and liberalism. By leaving the space open for debate and increased equality, liberalism tends to empower those who, unwittingly or not, seek to overthrow anything that can be called liberal. The race to ever-changing equality takes on a logic of its own. The slippery slope argument is therefore plausibly applicable to progressive politics by dint of the latter's own nature to push onward. The slippery slope argument doesn't work because it assumes outcomes are predetermined and that disparate events are connected. Trans people aren't demanding rights now because marriage equality was established by the Supreme Court. The demands have always been there, but you're just now noticing and connecting a past queer rights achievement to the current struggle. Also, this perspective ignores what is actually happening politically right now. In real terms, many states are moving in a more punitive and conservative direction on queer rights with anti-trans and don't say gay laws. Just because people are demanding more does not mean it is a slippery slope to them getting what they want. The opposite is occurring in many places in the context of relatively democratic systems of governance. The U.S. is democracy light, we'll say. Demands for equality occur because the existing system generates conditions of inequality, not because oppressed people or progressives are predisposed to just keep demanding more, as some sort of pathology. This is the writing of somebody who has all his needs securely satisfied and is offended that some people may not be content with their lot in life. He finishes the article with a mundane point about how just because somebody accuses you of doing a slippery slope, that doesn't mean it's actually a slippery slope or that your argument doesn't have merit, which like, yeah, you can't just go around shouting ad hominem and expect that to mean something on its own. To be honest, at the end of writing and recording all of this, I kind of hate that I picked this piece. 
Despite me saying a lot about it, there's almost nothing to it. I didn't want to do one of the longer City Journal articles because I don't have time for it this month, but goddamn, this makes me feel empty. <laughs> like I said at the beginning of the episode, next month will be a bonus episode, so if you're a subscriber, look forward to that. Otherwise, your next episode will be in December. I promise there will be more substance to the November episode and the forthcoming December episode than me ranting about slippery slope arguments. You'll also be able to join the new Discord server if you become a patron. That's patreon.com slash zonedoutpodcast. You can also find the show on Instagram at zoned underscore out underscore pod and Tumblr at zonedoutpodcast. The website is zonedoutpodcast.neocities.org. Thanks for listening and have a good one. Thank you.